0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter one, verses 21 through 23. And you, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, I want you to think about the last time you got something new. The last time you experienced that enthusiasm of newness that comes when you get a new thing. What was that for you? How recent was it for you? For me it was last May. Uh, Last May, my wife Lee and I bought a brand new car. First time in 20 years that I've bought a brand new car because Dave Ramsey said not to. So I haven't for 20 years, but you know what? Dave Ramsey doesn't always know what he's talking about. I'm just gonna pause here in case some of you guys need to get up and leave since I just blasphemed Saint Dave Ramsey. I didn't just buy any new car by the way, I bought a uh, Kia Telluride. The highest rated SUV ever tested by Consumer Reports because I do my homework, y'all. I'm not just buying anything, I'm gonna buy the thing that Consumer Reports says you ought to buy. So we went and bought this brand new car, ordered it, waited four months till it came in because that's how long it took. And uh, man, for the last year, I've been living in the enthusiasm of newness, you know? I get in that car, it still kind of smells new. It has, guys, it has stuff. I've never experienced in a car before. Just to give you a little reference point, my daily driver is a 2004 F-150. Some of my kids weren't even born when that truck was built, all right? So I'm not used to like this car, this new car has technology that like if I'm about to merge into a lane and there's a car there, it tells me. Just beep. You know, or if I'm, if I'm backing out of my driveway and there's a kid walking a dog behind me, it like alerts me that that person is there. I did not know cars could do this. It's amazing, you guys are like, yeah, our cars have been doing that for quite a while, <laughs> right? These are not new for some of you guys, but I'm still living in the enthusiasm of newness about this car. It's been a year, uh, so it's about a year old now, and you know, the enthusiasm's starting to wear off. Here's how it started to wear off, is when we were driving to Oklahoma earlier this summer, I was following a truck through a construction zone. I got a rock chip in the windshield, and I was like, oh, man, there it goes. And then, you know, within like a day, I got a huge crack all the way through the windshield. I showed up the next Sunday to church. Pastor Dusty was like, well, I saw that crack in your windshield. (laughs) He was like, yeah, how could you not? It's obvious. It's huge, right? So, uh, you know, it's like anything. The newness is starting to wear off, but, man, I've... It was, so, it was so fun to sort of like have this brand new car, a little bit nervous too, because every time you park it, you're like, you know, somebody going to open their door into the car, is somebody going to hit it with a cart, right? You guys understand how that works. But um, for me, that's, that's sort of my most recent experience with that en- enthusiasm that comes with newness. And, and I, I just reflected as I was thinking about that on the fact that the enthusiasm of newness... Um, can drive our relationship with God as well, can't it? When you first become a Christian, there's a natural momentum and energy that goes with that. And the same is true when you join a new church or when you start a new gospel community. Anytime there's something new that you're experiencing in your soul or in your spiritual life or rhythms, there tends to be a momentum and an energy and a joy that comes along with that. And yet... There comes a time, doesn't there, when the high wears off, when life catches up to you. And that's what I want to talk about together this morning. So we've got two weeks here in between our series on Psalms that we do every summer and a series in the book of James that we're starting here in a couple weeks. And I always try to leave a little bit of margin in the preaching schedule for some just standalone pastoral teaching, just some things that we as pastors are praying and thinking about for our church. And so that's what we're going to do this week and next week is just two sort of standalone sermons that I hope will be helpful to you in just thinking about where we are as people and as human beings in the season of time that we're living in. And as your pastor, here's what I've sensed over the last few years. Life is catching up to many of you. It always does. The enthusiasm of newness is wearing off. Some of you became Christians through the ministry of Quorum Deo. And so there was a season for you where faith was new where discipleship to Jesus was new, where the gospel was new, where even a church that cares about these things was new. And there was an energy and a momentum that came with that. Others of you didn't come to faith through Quorum Deo, but you did experience some meaningful gospel renewal in this community. There was a new and a fresh sense of love for God stirred in you. And for both of those groups of people, The enthusiasm of newness really sustained you for a while, right? When you look back on earlier seasons of your life, and even of earlier seasons of this church, and of your experience in this church, what you feel, what you look back on with appreciation, it's not just nostalgia or the good old days, it's often a real sense of joy and life that came with what God was doing in your life in that season of time. But listen, the enthusiasm of newness doesn't last forever. Sooner or later life catches up to you. And in that moment there's an inflection point in your spiritual life. And so I want to talk with you about what do you do? What do you do when you hit that inflection point? What do you do when life catches up to you? I want to think about that for a few minutes together and I want to consider what the scriptures have to say to us. About walking in and through that season. What some people do, what many people around you do when the high wears off is they go searching for a new high, right? And so for Christians, what this looks like is it looks like sometimes we can chase after the feeling of newness, right? Maybe it's a new church that we need, Maybe it's a new influencer we need to follow. Maybe a new cause we need to get involved with. Maybe a new theology we need to explore. It's like a spiritual midlife crisis, right? I'm just trying to figure out what's the new thing I can sort of chase after. And that's a little bit of the burden lying behind this sermon this morning. I've seen people chase newness instead of settling into long-term faithfulness. Listen, I've been pastoring this church for 17 years. I've seen a lot of people begin well in the journey of discipleship. I haven't seen as many of them end well. There's a lot of inflection points along that journey. And I don't want us to be people that burn hot and then flame out. I hope you don't want to be that either. I want us to be people who sustain discipleship to Jesus for the long term. And so that's really what we're talking about this morning, and I'm using this phrase, when life catches up to you, as a catch-all phrase to capture that season or seasons in the life of a disciple of Jesus when the initial momentum starts to wane. Like when the initial energy starts to burn out a little bit, and you hit that point where it feels like no longer are you sustained just by the sort of high and enthusiasm of newness. Those seasons can be many in our lives, and understanding how to walk in them and through them is a key part of walking with Christ. So if you have a Bible, I want to ask you to open it to that passage that you heard Sarah read, Colossians chapter 1. If you're using the Bible under your chair. You'll find it on page 924. You're going to look at a little paragraph in this letter to the Colossians. And as you open and find that text, I want to just pause and pray for us for a minute, if you'll allow me to. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for each person in this room, and thank you for the journeys that have gotten us to this room. Thanks for the joy of moments of newness and freshness and initial momentum. We don't want to look back on those things with cynicism because those are real and good. But we also want to ask your grace this morning as we think about what it means to sustain a life of following Jesus. So we open ourselves to your word. We open our hearts to your spirit. We ask that you would meet us and convict us and teach us and comfort us and renew us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's what we're going to see. When life catches up to you, you need to remember what's true. You need to resolve to stay faithful, and you need to renew your hope. That's what this passage says to us. When life catches up to you, remember what's true. Resolve to stay faithful. Renew your hope. When life catches up to you, remember what's true. Look with me at Colossians 1 verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice this text starts with who you once were. And it uses three terms to describe who you once were. Alienated, that's a relational term. Hostile in mind, that's an intellectual and volitional term. Evil deeds, doing evil deeds, that's a behavioral term. This is a summary of your default setting toward God. Right. The problem is not one part of you right? The problem is your whole being was oriented away from God. That's who you once were. And listen, this is the problem with our default setting as human beings. We are oriented away from God, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And listen, these evil deeds don't always look like the worst things you can possibly do. What they look like is you pursuing your own self-interest, right? So you can be oriented away from God while showing up at church, and paying lip service to religion. When life catches up to you, remember what's true. Tell the truth about yourself. Like, remember who you actually are apart from the grace of God. This is what's really true of you and of me and of every human being before Christ's grace meets us. We're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But now... Notice the flow of thought in the verse doesn't stop there. The verse goes on to say, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The text is speaking here of what God has done in Christ. He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. There's a really funny phrase in here. I don't know if you caught it. His body of flesh. That's a little redundant. What else would a body be made out of, right? Like when you read the Bible, sometimes you come across this stuff, you could could have just said his body, right? Body of flesh, even in the original Greek language, is a really redundant term. The commentators who are reading this book, they stop and go, well, that's a weird way of saying it. Why would Paul the writer say he's reconciled you in the body that he has that was made out of flesh? Well, the reason is because one of the ancient heresies that's percolating in the early world is the heresy of Gnosticism, which basically says Jesus wasn't really human. He was sort of like a ghost, or he had some sort of a bodily appearance. It looked like he was flesh and blood, but really he was like an angel, or like a spiritual being. He seemed to be real, but he wasn't real. Paul say, "Nope, listen... Here's how Jesus died in a real body made out of the same stuff that your body is made out of. And by that death, Christ has now reconciled you. So he's saying Christ had a real body, that real body died, and by that death, Christ has now reconciled you, relational category, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. So remember those three terms, right? You're alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. But Christ, through his death, has now reconciled you so that he could present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This text is reminding you of what's true. What was true of you? What is true of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ? And then what's true of you now as a result of what God has done? and of your faith in Christ. This is just the basic good news of the gospel. The basic good news of the gospel is there's a problem. The problem is with you and me and everyone else. God has solved that problem in and through the death of Jesus Christ. And now, by virtue of his death and resurrection, we are changed. Yeah, that's good news. So look, when life catches up to you, remember what's true. That's the first thing this text is telling us. Look, I, here's what's going to happen. When life catches up to you, sometimes the way it manifests itself is just by sort of a, a distance from the good news of the gospel, like an inability to just remember and remind yourself of what's true. I've mentioned before that I'm a very cynical, doubtful, intellectually-minded, curious kind of person, and so when life catches up to me, it often catches up in doubt and cynicism and despair. Um, like, like, there's mornings when I get up and I go, why, why do I believe this again? Like, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm admitting that to you, so it's okay if that happens to you as well, right? If you get up and you're like, Why am I a Christian again? And when I doubt, do you know what I come back to? Like, I literally do this. I ask myself, Did Jesus of Nazareth die on a cross? Like, did that actually happen in history? And the answer to that question, when you start doing the research, is an unavoidable, historically verifiable yes. Now, there are people everywhere who would say, well, yeah, Jesus died, but it, you know, he wasn't the son of God. He didn't rise from the dead, blah, blah. But if you ask, does history tell us that a man named Jesus from a place called Nazareth was crucified by the Romans in the first century? The unavoidable witness of history is yes, that actually happened. So I find myself just going back to that and going, well, look, that happened. So the only question is, did that moment in history accomplish these things that Paul says it did? Like, was I alienated from God and did the death of Christ reconcile me to God? And and if so, then here I am. I've got to remember what's true. I've got to remind myself of the, the veracity, the historical credibility of of the gospel message and likewise when life catches up with you you need to remember what's true and to come back to the verifiable historical truth of the death of Jesus so listen I want to free you I want to empower you to take this with you into your friendships and into your gospel community when we are struggling in life when life catches up with us in all the various ways that it does we need to be reminded of what's true Like when life catches up with me, I need more than some smiley face emojis, right? I need more than like, hey man, I'll pray for you. That's good, but I also need to be reminded, hey, you know what, And Christ really died for you. And that really changes things. And that's really true and it's true regardless of how you feel and regardless of how your week has been and regardless of what your circumstances are, that really is true. And that's crucial to remember when life catches up with us. So let's first of all remember what's true. Let's stay grounded in the veracity and truthfulness of the gospel message. But here's the second thing we see in this text. When life catches up to you, resolve to stay faithful. There's, there's a remembering what's true. There's like, okay, I got I to ground myself again in the truth of the gospel But there's not only remembering that, there's also a need for me to resolve, to choose, to decide to stay faithful. Look at verse 23. I guess we'll back up and start in 22. Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Look at the three words that are used here. First, continue. This is a word that just means remain, keep at it, persist. Continue in the faith, stable. Stable in the original text is a construction word. It's a word that you would find used on a construction site, especially when the foundation is being laid. It's literally a word that means well founded, established on a solid foundation. Any of you who are in construction, whether you build houses or decks or fences or patios, right, you know that, I mean, if you're not starting with a good foundation, it's not gonna go well. The very first thing you gotta get right is the stability of the foundation. So this is saying continue in the faith, stable. Founded, established, and steadfast. This is just a word that means steady, settled. It has that sense of a long obedience in the same direction. What this text is reminding you of is the beauty and the importance of resolve. We tend to think, as modern people, that what demonstrates authenticity is whether we really feel it, right? That's what makes things authentic and real, is if I really feel it. And so we live in this world where authenticity looks like, just barf out whatever you're feeling all the time on social media and the rest of us will deal with it, right? Like, tell us how you're feeling about everything. We all wanna know. That's real authenticity. Thank you for filling up my feed with all the things that are going on in you, right? We live in this world where that's what counts as authenticity. But listen, let's just, let's just examine that assumption for a minute, right? Um, what does it mean to authentically work out? What does it mean to authentically change your eating habits? What does it mean to authentically pay off that debt that you need to get paid off? What authenticity looks like in these areas is resolve, like sticking with it even when you don't feel like it. If you only worked out when you feel like it, if you only ate healthy when you feel like it, if you only paid off debt when you feel like it, you would never do those things. We all know that, hey, some of the most important things in life require resolve, and therefore authenticity is not doing what you feel. Sometimes authenticity is doing exactly what you don't feel, right? Some of you are here today, and like when you walked in here, you weren't really feeling it, you know? But you're here, and God is pleased with that. Because part of Christian faithfulness Is a godly resolve that says, I'm going to show up and worship God whether I feel like it or not because God is worthy of worship whether I feel like it or not. The most important thing is not, how do I feel about it? The most important thing is, am I going to keep doing it because God is worthy of it, right? Resolve is a beautiful thing, a virtuous thing, a godly thing. And part of what we need to remind ourselves when life catches up with us is that we need to resolve to stay faithful. We need to lean into that healthy good kind of Christian resolve that just says, I'm sticking with this thing. One of the most famous theologians, and in fact, historical figures in the American experience, is Jonathan Edwards, who lived during the Great Awakening, pastored in Massachusetts, um, was also the grandfather of Aaron Burr, which I know all of you have seen Hamilton, So there you go. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, just back up a couple of generations. I don't think he was as shady as Aaron Burr, but anyways, they're related, okay? So that's your Hamilton reference for the day. But Jonathan Edwards uh, was one of the most prolific theological writers in the English language, and the library at Yale University has the entire works of Jonathan Edwards, And they occasionally are translating and uh, re-releasing all this various wealth of stuff that Jonathan Edwards wrote. One of the things we have from the pen of Jonathan Edwards is what are called his resolutions. These are, it's basically his journal. So like you, Jonathan Edwards hit a moment in life where life was catching up to him. And he sat down with his journal and with a pen and was just like, all right, well, what am I going to do? What do I need to sort of resolve to do before the Lord? And um, I want to share some of these with you because I think I want us to learn from just how good it is to resolve things, to make resolutions. So here are some of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. By the way, he was 18 years old when he wrote these. Okay, 18 to 20. So listen, you high school students, you college students, He's in your season of life. This isn't some guy who's like 60, you know, and he's been really godly for 40 years. This is a guy trying to figure out, what am I gonna do in my life? Am I really gonna walk with Christ? Like he's early in life. This is before he's, you know, preached and led the great awakening and written a bunch of books. Listen to this. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I want you to notice right in the beginning, do you see what he just said? He just said, God's grace and my resolve are not opposed to each other. He's not one of those Christians who's like, well, I mean, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. Nor is he one of those Christians who's like, well, you know what, if I don't do it, it ain't gonna happen. He's one of those people who understands, I've got to resolve and set my will in a certain direction. I also need the grace of God to enable me to keep this. And then I like this. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. He wrote that reminder to himself, just in case, right? Here, I, by the way, these are all numbered, and I'm going to give them to you out of order. I just picked a few. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved. That I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. That's one of my favorite ones. I want to live like I will wish I would have lived when I get to my deathbed. That will keep you from playing more video games, right? All right, 37. Resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself, also at the end of every week, month, and year. What a great practice just to see every day as a chance to sort of reflect and go, where have I been negligent? What sin have I committed? Where have I denied myself? Resolution 40, resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Did you know that's godly to reflect on that? What an amazing resolution. 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently As that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. In other words, if you don't resolve to study the Bible, it probably isn't going to happen. 42. Resolved frequently to renew the dedication of myself to God, which was made at my baptism, and which I solemnly renewed when I was received into the communion of the church. What a great resolution to frequently renew my dedication to God. To not count on the enthusiasm of newness from a few years back or maybe a few decades back to keep sustaining me. Number 56, resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. There's a guy with a healthy sense of realism. Look, I'm going to keep fighting my corruption and sin, no matter how unsuccessful I may be. I'm just going to stay at it. That's resolve. He's not saying, I'm only going to do this if I see success. He's going to say, you know what? Whether I see success or not, I'm committed to fighting. I show you that because I want you to see there's a person that had some resolve, that lived with a sense of resolute purpose. And listen. We need to be people kind of like that. You don't need to make those exact resolutions, and maybe some of those are overwhelming to you, and you're like, well, I can never do that, right? I know there's all kinds of things you may be thinking as you look at someone else's journal. Look, we're not reading your journal in church. It's okay, right? You have your own communion with God, but I want you to see part of what we need when life catches up to us is a healthy sense of resolve. Resolve to stay faithful. All right, here's the third thing we see in this passage. When life catches up to you, renew your hope. Look what it says next. If you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You know what happens when life catches up with you? Your hope shifts. Like you you start hoping in different things. Maybe you used to have a lot of hope in God and in what God has done in Christ. But man, when life catches up with you, your hope starts to shift. If the kids would just obey if this relationship would work out, if this medical situation would get resolved, if I could just get into or get out of this marriage or this job or this neighborhood, then, then everything would work out. One question every one of us should be asking is this, what am I hoping in? Like, where is my hope? Hope is, just if you want to think about it real simply, Hope is what you're looking forward to. It's the thing that's pulling you forward in life. And what a lot of us are hoping, and if you really ask the question, what's pulling me forward? What a lot of us are hoping in is a change in our circumstances, right? I, if I, I just want to hope that things are going to work out differently for me. Listen, what a shallow hope that is. What a bad source of hope. Do you know why? Why? Because your circumstances are the one thing that you can't count on. Like, you don't know what your circumstances are going to be. We, of course, we all hope that everything's going to be better for us in the future. But there's no guarantee of that. Do You know what the hope of the gospel is? The hope of the gospel is a new heavens and a new earth. The hope of the gospel is the redemption of all things in Christ. The cosmic renewal of the whole creation. The hope of the gospel is everything sad becoming untrue, to use the language of Tolkien. So what this text is telling you is, hey, when life catches up to you, you know what you got to do? You got to renew your hope. You got to come back to, what is the thing that's pulling me forward? Is it my circumstances working out? Because here's what I've seen a lot of people do. We love walking with Jesus as long as we believe that God's going to make everything work out. And then when God doesn't make everything work out, guess what? We bail on God. Because our hope was never in God, it was in what God was going to do in our circumstances. It was in stuff working out for me. That's not hope in God. That's hope in a prosperity gospel that's never been true and still isn't true. Do you know what hope in God is? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job. Though there's no fig trees in the field and no fruit on the vines, yet I will trust him, Habakkuk. That's what hope in God is. It's hope that says not about my circumstances, it's about what God is going to do in the world. And listen, notice the language that Paul uses. This is distinct to Colossians, this, this cosmic language, right? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Like this is a gospel that is for the whole world, that is about everything God is doing to renew creation. That's what this gospel is about. That's the hope we've got to renew. When life catches up with you, renew your hope. Listen to me, the gospel is not merely backward looking, it's forward looking. And part of the weakness with how a lot of us have come to believe in the gospel, and part of the weakness with how the gospel is preached in many American churches, is that it's all backward looking. You're looking back to the day you trusted in Jesus, the day you got saved, and then there's just a big jump from there to like, heaven. But friends, the gospel doesn't just look back to the day we met Jesus. It looks forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. looks forward to the redemption of all things, the summing up of all things in Christ. That's the day that's coming, and then we get to live in anticipation of that day. That's what it means to renew your hope. And listen, that's why Paul says, hey, don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There's lots of other hopes on offer out there. There's lots of other things that pull people forward in life. None of them is as good as the hope of the gospel. So when life catches up with you, the text says, renew your hope. Renew your hope. Come back to the thing that you hoped in in the first place. The good news of the coming redemption that God is accomplishing in Christ. So friends, here's what I'm saying to you. The enthusiasm of newness is a wonderful thing. We should enjoy it while it lasts. But it's not gonna last forever. Sooner or later, life is going to catch up to you. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. Some of you, life hasn't caught up to you yet, but it's coming for you. And that moment is an inflection point in your spiritual life. That moment is when deep discipleship And deep communion with God really begin. Listen, so much of American Christianity runs on adrenaline. Right? It runs on passion. It's, you know, to use food analogies, it's like running on carbs all the time. Right? Just keep that sugar coming. As long as I got that sugar high, we'll be fine. But what's the problem then? Then when I'm out of sugar, now I got to sustain energy with something deeper. And when we get to that, what I want you to hear is this. God brings you to that place in your soul because he loves you and because he wants you to sustain a life of long-term discipleship. It's not that that initial high and that initial momentum and that initial passion is bad. It's just that it can't sustain 50 years of faithfulness to Jesus. So we've got to learn to run on something deeper. We've got to learn to expect that life's going to catch up with us. And we've got to learn to dig in in those moments and remember what's true and resolve to stay faithful, and renew our hope. That's what we need to do when life catches up to us. And so let's just pray that God would give us grace to live in that together and to do those things with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder in the book of Colossians. Thanks for the reminder of who we were and what you have done in Christ thanks for this invitation, this call, this command to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And we ask for the grace to do that. We ask that you would give us the grace to to make resolutions, to commit ourselves in a direction and to stick with it. And then Father, we thank you for this reminder that we aren't to shift from the hope of the gospel. And we just confess to you all the other hopes on offer that find their way into our souls. God, would you forgive us for all the other things we find ourselves hoping in? Would you, would you renew in us this morning the hope of the gospel, the hope of a new heavens and a new earth, the hope of full communion with you and with one another, the hope of a day when everything sad will become untrue. And let that hope pull us through all the uncertainties and confusion of life in the present. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.